Good morning, Highland Community Church. Let me open this up in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together this morning. Father, we're grateful for the chance to open up your word and to hear from you. We are going to hear an important message about reconciliation and repentance today. And Father, I just pray that through this story and this account, it can encourage us, that it can remind us of how good and gracious you are and draw us closer in our walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, that little proverb became a major life lesson for my older brother during his high school years. You see, uh, I don't really care to share this story now because my brother now lives in Tennessee and chances are that he's not going to watch this sermon. Uh, So I think I'm free to share it unless one of you goes out and posts this on Facebook and tags me in it. So let's just agree not to do that. And I'll share this embarrassing story on my brother. You see, as a, as a teenager, my brother was one of those guys who just couldn't wait to start driving. He's one of those teenagers who went to the DMV on his 16th birthday for his driver's test because he wanted to get his license the day it was possible. But here's the thing. After only driving for a few months, my brother was extremely, let's just say, cocky and overconfident in his driving abilities. In his own estimation, Justin was a modern-day Duke of Hazard, flying around the back gravel roads of West Virginia as fast as possible in his blue mid-90s Chevy Blazer. And you know, it wasn't long until my dad got a phone call from people who lived out in the country saying, we saw a blue Chevy Blazer flying down the road and it looked like it was Justin. Not the phone call that you want to receive as a parent of a teenager. And after that phone call and a few of those, my dad had a conversation with my brother to lay off the lead foot. But you know, as teenagers typically do, the advice went in one year and out the other. And before long, Justin was right back to drag racing and drifting all over the gravel roads. And you know, he especially loved to drive fast whenever I was in the car because he liked the reaction it would draw out of me because I would always get scared and start yelling at him to slow down. So finally, one of these days, I'm tired of his reckless driving. And I said to him, you're going to wreck and you're going to hurt both of us if you don't slow down. And then he replied with the now iconic words in the Good Ballot family. And he said, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm the gravel king. Famous words. Remember our proverb, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, now let's, let's be clear. A 17-year-old who's had his license for a year is certainly not a king when it comes to driving. That was a self-given title that was based on a dangerous blend of pride and a little bit of overconfidence. But I mean, to be fair, don't those two words pretty much summarize all of our teenage years in a nutshell? Pride and overconfidence? I I think we've all exhibited that dangerous blend at some point. Well, I can tell you this. The gravel king didn't have a very long reign. After only about two weeks later, the gravel roads decided they didn't like his rule and they deposed him as king. One afternoon, Justin was driving back from squirrel hunting and he finally met the curve that was his match. He was going about 50 miles an hour flying down this gravel road and he comes around this curve, loses control, goes into a fishtail, goes into a ditch, and proceeds to roll his blazer three different times. I think we have a picture of what his blazer looked like once we were able to roll it back over. You know, 
providentially, my brother walked away from that car wreck without a single scratch or injury. In God's goodness, he was totally uninjured physically. You know, uh, ego-wise, I think he was uh, a little harmed that day. But the gravel king lost his throne. And you know, the hardest moment of that day for my brother was making the phone call to my dad to own up to his mistake. You know, there was no way that he could cover this up. There was no buffing out the scratches. There was no popping out the dents. There was no hiding this. He had nowhere to run. He had to confess his mistakes to my dad. And as he called my dad, I'm sure that he had this mix of emotions of shame and embarrassment and fear. And we know what that feeling is like. I mean, when we are painfully humbled in a moment of failure, taking ownership of our failure is one of the most profoundly thing, painful things that we can do in our lives. It's painful to admit failure. Justin was afraid to make that phone call because he was afraid of disappointing my dad, but he was also afraid of the repercussions and punishment that would ensue. However, when my dad answered, he responded with absolute grace. My dad's first concern wasn't rebuking and punishing Justin for his mistake, but instead his greatest concern was making sure that my brother was safe. And you know, that's the same response that my dad had when he got a phone call like that three years later from his other son. But you know, that's, that's a different story for another time today. We're focusing in on Justin's mistakes, not mine. <laughs> you know, there, there were some consequences for Justin's decision to drive recklessly, but as we reflect on that story, my dad's grace far overshadows the punishment that Justin received afterwards. The gravel king lost his crown that day, but he gained a very important lesson in humility. And I think we can probably all sympathize with my brother. We know what it's like to be overconfident and then have the rug ripped out from under us. We know what it's like to experience failure and how profoundly painful that can be. And you know, our natural reaction to failure in our life is oftentimes to feel ashamed, embarrassed, defeated. And because of that, we try to run or hide from our failure. And this morning, we're going to see how Jesus responded to the apostle Peter after he had his own gravel king moment. A couple weeks before the text that we're going to read tonight, uh, Peter had a major moment of spiritual pride because he had a, a misplaced confidence in his own strength. And because of that, Peter made a bold assertion that he wasn't able to back up. The setting is the Mount of Olives. And it's just a, a couple hours before Judas betrays Jesus and the events of his crucifixion and trial uh, begin to unfold. And with pain and sadness in Jesus' eyes on this final night, he looks over to his disciples in Matthew 26 and he says this to them. He says, you will all fall away because of me tonight. Jesus tells his disciples, before the end of the night, every last one of you is going to fall away. Every last one of you is going to deny your love and allegiance for me. And the other disciples knew well enough to keep their mouths shut when Jesus made a prediction like this, but Peter can't help himself. In a flurry of self-confidence and pride, Peter blurts out, though they all fall away, I never will. Peter is saying implicitly, I love you more than these other guys. They might fail you, but I won't, Jesus. And then Jesus corrects Peter and he says, no, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Sorry, Peter, 
you're wrong. But Peter, believing that he knows better, even than Jesus himself says, you know what, Jesus, no, you're wrong because even if I have to die tonight, I will never deny you. That's a bold promise to make. But sadly, we know the end of the story, don't we? It's a promise they made, but he didn't have the courage to back it up. Peter proves that he doesn't walk the talk. Before the first glimmer of sunlight that next morning, Peter denies Jesus three times. And by the third time he denies Jesus, he's so fearful and so uh, adamant about distancing himself from Jesus, he calls down curses and swears that I've never met the man. And the moment that he says that, a major moral failure, I mean, uh, there's few things that could uh, compare to that type of failure in our spiritual lives. And the moment that Peter says those words and they leave his lips, Jesus gazes over, locks eyes with Peter, and Peter's heart was pierced with the deepest shame and regret you could ever imagine. And the gospel of Mark tells us that Peter has an emotional breakdown and he runs away crying and weeping bitterly. You can't get a a clear picture in scripture of someone who stumbled spiritually. And here's the questions we're going to answer this morning. How did Peter respond after this major failure? And how did he recover from such spiritual failure in his life? And those are incredibly important questions for us to ask because just like Peter, we're going to have a gravel king moment in our spiritual lives. We're going to have a moment where we fail and stumble. And how do we respond? How does Jesus expect faithful followers to respond to moments of failure and unfaithfulness? And maybe that's exactly the message that you need to hear this morning. As you listen to Peter's story, you resonate with him because there's something in your past that haunts you and you are so filled with shame and regret that it's holding you back in your spiritual walk. Maybe right now you're reflecting on something that you did in your past and you think Jesus could never love me because of this. Jesus could never forgive me. Maybe you've denied Jesus at some point in your life and you think that you're off the team and there's no way you could ever be back in a right relationship with Christ. Or or maybe right now God's bringing a sin or addiction to your mind that you've been running away from. You've been trying to hide. You've been trying to cover it up, but none of that's been working. When we feel like failures, how do we move past our failure and find forgiveness. That's what we'll be discovering in John 21. Let's go ahead and read verses one through six to set up the scene of our passage or of our, of our story. Here's what it says. And, this, and after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two of his other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And the other said to him, well, we're going to go with you. So they went out and got into a boat and fished all night. But that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know it that, did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus called out to them and said, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Notice how our passage begins. Jesus is walking on a beach and he starts up a conversation with a group of men fishing in the Sea of Galilee. 
If you're sensing uh, a sense of deja vu, you should be, because this is almost identical to the passage that describes when Jesus first called uh, four of his disciples while they were fishing in their, in their boats. As thoughtful readers of God's word who are engaged with the narrative of the text, here's a question that should be provoked in our minds as we read this. If Jesus called the disciples to leave their boats and their fish and their tackle and their nets, why are they back on the Sea of Galilee fishing again? Well, I think the answer is this. The apostles are no longer confident in their calling as being disciples and apostles of Jesus. After their monumental failure in the garden, I think they're kind of giving up on their calling. They're saying this, this apostle thing's hard. We failed Jesus. We're going back to our old lifestyle, what's easy, what's comfortable. And we're going to run away from our mistakes and our failure. So as Peter is reflecting on his denial of Jesus and he's racked with guilt and shame and defeat, he throws in the towel and says, I'm going back to fishing. And a bunch of the other disciples say, we'll go with you. As Peter reflected upon his recent failure, Peter tries to run away from his problems. He tries to hide from his failure. And you know, Peter exemplifies the wrong response to spiritual failure in this moment, running away. So let's learn from his example and summarize our first principle from this passage today this way. When we have a spiritual failure, point number one, we need to refuse to run away. We need to refuse to run away. Facing failure is profoundly painful. It's a lot easier to try to run away from our failure when we make a mistake. It's a lot easier to try to hide something and go back to whatever is easy or comfortable after we fail instead of confronting our mistakes head on. And that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to run away from his failure. He's trying to run away from confession. He's trying to run away from repentance. He's trying to run away from Jesus. Instead of running to Jesus for confession and cleansing, and reconciliation. He's going back to the old lifestyle that Jesus called him out of. But Peter doesn't realize that running away from your failure is a race that you will never win. Peter's trying to hide from the conviction and shame and guilt that's plaguing his heart. But you know, that's not just a Peter problem, is it? That's a human problem. If we're being honest this morning, we've all experienced that temptation to run away from our sin and our failures. Think back to the Garden of Eden, the very first sins that were ever committed after Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do they immediately do? They try to run away from God. They try to hide from his presence. Our fallen nature says, when I mess up, I need to hide and I need to run away. And don't we see this happen all the times in our spiritual lives as well? It happens when a person leaves a church because a sermon addresses a sin issue in their life. And they think, you know what? When I go to church, I I, I just want a pep talk. I want a self-help message. I want a a life coach guru. And I want to walk away feeling good about myself. And I, I didn't like that they called this out in my life. It happens when we try to run away from a spiritual mentor when we're chasing after sin in our lives, knowing they're going to ask us tough questions and we don't want that accountability and we want to keep chasing after our sin. It happens when a spouse, after committing a sin against their spouse, whether that's verbally or emotionally or physically or, or, or whatever that is, they try to run away and, and justify their sin in their mind and then just try to spend as much time as possible 
away from being in the house and trying, trying to run away from their failure. It happens when the Holy Spirit convicts us of an unconfessed sin in our life. But instead of confessing that sin to Jesus, we do everything we can to hide it. We turn to music or sleep or food or being social to distract us from the lingering guilt we have. I mean, in Wisconsin, how many people have used alcohol or, or drugs as a way to cope and try to escape for their failures? After losing a job or failing at a goal or hurting a friend or disappointing a parent or feeling overwhelmed by life, how many of people run to the bottom of a bottle instead of to Jesus? But here's the thing, we can't outrun God. The Bible makes it clear if we're truly his children, he's going to pursue us and do whatever is necessary to bring us back. I think of what David wrote in Psalm 32 verses 1 through 4. This describes the year that he tried to hide sin from God. He said, Blesses the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blesses the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whom there's no spirit of deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through me, groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as the heat of summer. When we put off getting right with God, every area of our lives are impacted. Our joy will be diminished. Our relationships with others will be damaged. The satisfaction in our life will be taken away and our usefulness for Christ will be crippled. And worst of all, we'll never experience healing. Healing will never come while you're on the run. Let me say that again. Healing will never come while you're on the run. And ultimately, it's foolish for us to be afraid to go to Jesus. Because yes, confession might bring some momentary discomfort and pain. But confession is the only path to healing. And in, in the long term, Jesus always has our best interest in healing in his sights. And we see that so clearly in verses 7 through 14 of our passage. Let me go ahead and read those verses now. It says this, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the ocean. Once again, you know, Peter's not always the brightest guy who gets dressed before they jump in the water, you know, so just pointing that out there. The other disciples came behind him in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, an immense, miraculous catch. Now, although there were so many of them, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now, this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, I think the second principle that we see from this chunk of the passage, if we're going to confront spiritual failure head on, point number two, we need to trust that God is gracious. We need to trust that God is gracious. Notice how Jesus interacts with his disciples in these verses. I mean, first, Jesus is the one who initiates the reconciliation process. They're running away. They've returned to their own lifestyle. They're out on the boats. They're hiding And Jesus goes and seeks them out. Jesus always initiates the reconciliation process with us. But second, Jesus cooks them breakfast. 
From this text, we know that Jesus builds a charcoal fire. He cleans the fish. He cooks the fish. He brings bread with him. After a long, arduous night of fishing, Jesus is concerned for their health and well-being. The disciples were probably famished and Jesus is taking care of their needs. And Jesus shows that he's even now looking after their most basic needs, even when they're trying to hide from him. But third, we see that Jesus is their, their waiter. He doesn't just cook the food. The text makes it clear he's the one who serves them the fish and the bread as well. Just like when Jesus washed the disciples' feet just a few weeks earlier, Jesus is showing that he's a Savior and Lord who loves to serve his disciples and his followers. Jesus demonstrates immense grace and humility. Even when we fail, Jesus shows that he is faithful to show us his sacrificial love. In these verses, Jesus shows immeasurable grace and love for the disciples, even when they were entirely unfaithful to him. Jesus responds to their failure with forgiveness and grace and mercy. Jesus teaches us an important lesson. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. We serve a gracious savior, which means that Jesus is so quick to give us things that we don't deserve like his love and forgiveness. You know, I imagine that the disciples were expecting a very different reaction from Jesus. They were probably expecting Jesus to be livid. They were probably be expecting to be taken behind the spiritual woodshed and, and given some discipline. They probably expected the same expectation that the prodigal son had when he thought about his return to his father. He expected the father to disown him, to demote him and to humiliate him and punish him. But just as the prodigal son was astonished by the grace and love and compassion of his father, so the apostles were astonished by the grace and love and compassion of their savior. They experienced what 1 John 1, 9 says, what we talked about a couple weeks ago. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Peter runs to Jesus for reconciliation. We need to recognize that if we fail, Jesus doesn't want us to hide and run away from him. He doesn't expect us to try to earn his forgiveness. No, he wants us to run to him for forgiveness. He doesn't want Satan to be able to keep us imprisoned in shame and guilt. He wants us to come to him for cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation. But you know, oftentimes Satan, our spiritual enemy, comes along and whispers in our lives things that get us to run away from Jesus. He says things like this, God feels nothing but disgust and disappointment when he looks at your life. You are beyond God's grace. You've messed up so badly. How could God ever forgive you? or love you. He says, you've failed in the same area so many times in your life. You've used up all God's forgiveness, three strikes and you're out. He's kicking you off the team. You can't keep going back for forgiveness for this same sin issue. Or he says, you know, you can't go to Jesus for forgiveness yet. You need to prove that you're really sorry. You need to do some serious penance. You need to try to clean yourself up. You need to work really hard and maybe just maybe you'll earn the right to come back to Jesus and he'll forgive you. You know, those are all lies. They're straight from the mouth of Satan. We serve a gracious and merciful savior. And the gospel confronts everyone, the last one of those lies. First of all, no one's beyond God's grace. Romans 10, 13 promises for anyone, everyone, any person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one's beyond God's grace. 
Second, we, we know that there's no limit to God's forgiveness. Remember what 1 John 1, 9 said, if we just confess our sin, he will always be faithful and for just to forgive our sin. We're called to fight sin, but when we fail, there's no limit to his grace in our lives. And then third, Jesus never told people they have to clean themselves up before they can come to him for forgiveness. I think of the story Jesus shared about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was trying to show off his moral resume to God, showing why he deserved God's love and forgiveness, while the tax collector stood afar off, beating his chest, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And only one of them, the tax collector, went home justified that day. Remember that we serve a gracious Savior. If you've been carrying a burden of unconfessed sin, then please realize that Jesus doesn't want you to keep carrying that. You can lay that burden down at the foot of the cross. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he died on the cross in order to free you from your sin and your shame. And you don't have to walk through life carrying the guilt and shame and regret of your failures. If you long for redemption, then come to the cross of Christ and find it. We find forgiveness and freedom by looking at Jesus with faith. And Peter was able to find both of those things. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 17 and verse 19. This is the, the light at the end of the tunnel after Peter's darkest days spiritually. It says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. And then in verse 19, he says this, he said uh, at the very end, after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. After breakfast is finished, Jesus takes a moment to pull Peter aside to help him move past his sin and failure. Now remember, facing our failure is always worth it, but in the moment, it can be a little uncomfortable and a little painful. I imagine that Jesus motioned for Peter to come over and take a walk with him on the beach privately. Peter was already feeling scared and awkward they had just been sitting around a charcoal fire, as the text says, which is really significant because the last charcoal fire that was mentioned was the charcoal fire that Peter stood around the night that he denied Jesus. Jesus is recreating that scene in Peter's mind. And as he's talking with Jesus, there's a six-ton elephant hiding in the corner of the room, and that's Peter's denial. So as they're slowly walking, and Jesus decides to break the awkward silence. He looks over and he says, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me more than these? With one question, with precision, Jesus fillets open Peter's heart. He cuts right to Peter's heart to expose his sin and failure. And that's the first thing that has to come if we want reconciliation with Jesus. Our failure has to be exposed. We have to admit our mistakes. And notice what Jesus calls Peter here. He says, Simon, son of John. Now, if you remember, Jesus never calls Peter Simon. Simon was Peter's pre-conversion name. Jesus, what he called him, gave him a new name, Peter, when he joined Jesus' team. So essentially, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, Peter, 
you haven't really been behaving like one of my disciples recently. Actually, you've been living a lot like you did before you followed me. You're, you're living a lot like pre-conversion Simon than brave and bold Peter. Jesus is pulling the first century version of a Snickers commercial where he says, hey, hey, eat a Snickers bar. You're not yourself when you're hungry. He's saying to, he's saying to Peter, hey, hey, you need to repent because you're not like yourself when there's unconfessed sin in your life. Stop being Simon. We need to get you being back to Peter. And second, notice that Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? These, the referent in the Greek there, are the disciples standing nearby. Jesus is exposing Peter's spiritual pride. He says, remember a few weeks ago where you said that you loved me more than them? Are you ready to humbly admit that maybe you were a little overconfident? Jesus says, you still think you love me more than them? Are you ready to respond with a little humility? And then lastly, before we look at Peter's response, notice how many times Jesus asked him if Peter loves him. Three times. And on the third time, Peter was deeply grieved. Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus needed to get Peter to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times. Peter had to come face to face with his greatest failure. And with tears in his eyes, he repents of his sin. Jesus was absolutely gracious to forgive him, but it had to start with Peter taking ownership of his sin and confessing it before Jesus. And I loved Peter's response in verse 17. He finally pleads to Jesus' omniscience and cries out, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know that I messed up. I know I haven't been living like it, Jesus, but, but you know my heart and you know that I love you so much. I've been acting like a fool. I'm so sorry, forgive me. And notice how Jesus responds each time. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is showing Peter, you are forgiven. I am recommissioning you for kingdom service. Repentance, Peter, leads to restoration. I'm cleansing you of your sin, but now I'm calling you to get back to living like you did before. And for Peter to truly repent, he had to put down the fishing nets and leave the boat and leave the fishing tackle all over again and get back to entrusting his life fully to Jesus. Jesus is going to the salvage yard and purchasing a salvage title on Peter's spiritually wrecked life and doing the repairs himself and saying, I own you again. He's taking Peter's sin and failures, nailing it to the cross and saying it's been paid in full. Whom the son sets free is free indeed. And here's our last point of application, our third principle from this text very quickly. We need to respond to our sin and failure with the three R's. We need to remember, repent, and redo. Remember the three R's. First, remember. Jesus prompts Peter to remember his true love. He says, Peter, do you, do you love me. He says, Peter, remember, remember the love that you had for me at first. You, you don't love this fishing tackle. You don't love this, you don't love your old lifestyle more than me. You love me. Remember that. Remember the love that you had for me at first. Remember your love. You know, as we think about that in our lives, a lot of us start off strong when we come to a saving faith in Christ, don't we? We're on fire. Something radical happens. You know, just this past week, I was listening to the sermon at Cedarville that was preached the night I gave my life to Christ. And as I listened to that, there was just tears in my eyes as I remember 
the, the way that God revealed himself to me that night and the way he changed my life. And I remembered the fire that I had at first, but then over time, we start to get a little distracted, don't we? Other loves, counterfeit loves start to take hold in our heart and steal our affection and our attention. So today we need to stop and remember the love for Jesus we had at first, which brings us to a second R. After we remember the love for Jesus we had at first, we need to repent. We need to repent. Peter has to repent of his sin and turn back to following Jesus. Repent means a 180 degree turn. It means, yes, for a little bit, I've been chasing after sin and the world and idolatry, but now I'm turning my focus away from that and turning it back towards Jesus and I'm leaving sin in the dust. And yes, I'm gonna follow Jesus once again, wholeheartedly. Repentance is the only way to be cleansed of our sin and our shame. What are the sins that we need to repent of today? And then third, Jesus says, okay, Peter, now you get to redo, redo. It's time to get back to being the person that I redeemed you to be. Stop being Simon and start being Peter. Get back to serving, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter, you get a do-over and this time do it right. Cleansing always leads to calling. There's no category for a Christian without a mission. There's no biblical category for cleansing without following. There's no biblical category for saving without serving. So what do you need to redo in your spiritual walk? Maybe you need to repent of being distracted and get back to faithfully spending time with Jesus each day in quiet time. Maybe it's time to repent of that sin and get back to faithfully serving at church. Maybe it's time to repent of that sin and get back to prioritizing Christian community. Maybe it's time to repent of that sin and get back to being a bold witness for Jesus in your workplace. You know, as I reflect on Jesus den- or Peter's denial of Jesus on that fateful night. I imagine Peter thought this is game over. I've disqualified myself. I'm useless for Jesus now. He can't fix the mess I've made. And this passage reminds us that Peter was restored through Jesus' grace. He overcame his failure to go on to write two books of the Bible, help establish early churches and die as a martyr for the gospel. Nobody is too broken for Jesus to heal. And Peter learned when we stumble, we must refuse to run away. We must trust that God is gracious and we must remember, repent, and redo. So what areas do you need to stop running from Jesus today and instead run to Jesus knowing that he will give you the forgiveness and grace that you need? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this powerful passage that reminds us of your grace. That reminds us that when we come to you with repentant, remorseful hearts, you'll never turn us away. There is no sin so great that the power of the cross cannot take away if we come to you and ask for your grace. Jesus, we thank you that you are a savior, not of second chances, but third, fourth, 10th, 20th, a hundred chances, and that your grace never runs out on us. Help us to run not away from you, but to you every single time. We love you and we thank you for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us together this morning.